Okay. If you want to uh, turn your Bibles, please, to Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. We're going to be uh, starting in verse 45 and working through to verse 52. So Mark 6, 45 to 52. Let's take a moment and just pray and, and then we'll, we'll begin. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us an infallible, inerrant, and powerful, authoritative word in the scriptures. And God, as we come to the hearing of the word today, Lord, we pray that you would open up our ears and our hearts right now to reveal your glory to us. As we study this story of, of you walking on the water at Galilee, Lord Jesus, we recognize so many layers of significance in this event in history. And God, we pray that you would deposit in us a real awakening to the truth of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He is the God-man sent from heaven to reconcile God's people unto him, to save sinners. So Lord, open our hearts and Father, do a work in us today, we pray. Heart, uh, Lord, help me not to get in the way of your word today. Help me to preach it as it is and build us up as a congregation uh, to be effective in the ministry in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read together. I'm in the English Standard Version. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when, he saw them, sorry, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. Now today we're considering one of the most well-known miracles in the entire Bible. In fact, in entire human history. Even those who've never set foot in a church before, they know about this miracle, don't they? They know about Jesus walking on the water. This miraculous account, to be honest, is, is found in, uh, to be honest, is one of the most disputed things in history as well. It's found in three Gospels, so Matthew, um, Mark, and also John. But um, so many, you know, lettered, scholars have a real problem with uh, the miracle of Jesus walking on the water and in fact I read one just this week it was a, a scholar at FSU which I think is Florida State University is that right Claire um, and this guy do you know what he said about this miracle he said this he said um, he said I know what happened I know what really happened here's my thesis Jesus was floating on sea ice. 
Sea ice on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was floating on sea ice. Please. Um, Another classic explanation is that Jesus was walking on a sandbar. I remember being kind of taught that in in secondary school RE, um, that Jesus was probably walking on a sandbar, um, or that it was actually a mirage, uh, that uh, the disciples were all witnessing simultaneously a mirage of Jesus walking on water, but that he wasn't actually indeed walking on the water. This scholar at Florida State University admitted that uh, ice on the Sea of Galilee doesn't happen. He said it was a freak weather incident that caused this. I mean, just picture that for a moment. Jesus floating on a slab of sea ice out to his disciples. It would have looked pretty comical, I think, but there we go. Um, So, skeptics basically seem to really not like this particular account, okay? And the truth is, what we've got in the Gospels, they're not just the Word of God in the sense that they are supernaturally inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the Gospels are also first century eyewitness testimonies, okay? These are historical documents. They're historical sources. I don't know if you realize this, but historians actually use the New Testament to verify certain facts about history, like the names of towns in the Middle East, the names of rulers. In fact, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are actual historical sources that historians use to piece together information about the Roman Empire. But it's funny, isn't it, that as soon as those same documents, those same reliable historical documents that the scholars use, as soon as they begin to talk about the supernatural, oh, they're not reliable anymore. As soon as they talk to, start to talk about Jesus, miracles, God, all of a sudden the historians don't want to take them seriously anymore. But I want to tell you this, your Gospels are historical, reliable historical facts, sorry, they're historical witnesses to what happened in that first century. So we've got three independent historical accounts of this same miracle happening from Matthew, Mark, and John. And I think that most skeptics don't like this miracle because they understand that if they accept it as fact, they have to accept also that supernatural events do happen. That there is a God who governs both the natural and the supernatural. And also, this miracle, it wasn't performed by any old sort of Tom, Dick or Harry. It was performed by Jesus. It was performed by Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be the Son of God. So to admit the miracle for a skeptic, for an atheist scholar, would be a real problem for them. So I think that's the root of why they want to deny it. That's the root of why they want to do away with it or create other explanations for it and seemingly they don't mind sounding super foolish when they do that they haven't got a problem with sounding moronic uh, in their attempts to explain away the miracle on the sea of galilee i want to say to you brothers and sisters jesus did walk on water that's a historical fact he didn't float on any sea ice there was no mirage because it was around 3 a.m in the morning so there's no sun and there's no heat and you don't have mirages where there's no sun and there's no heat And there is no sandbank in the Galilee that Jesus walked on. We are talking about a bona fide miracle here in the Gospel of Mark. Now, 
I want to say, church, that if we don't believe this miracle to be true, and if we don't believe that miracles are possible, we actually don't have a gospel to preach. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. If we don't believe that the Bible is actually telling the truth about the history of miracles, like walking on the water, like Jesus being raised from the dead, if these aren't actual historical events, we don't have a gospel. We don't. We've got no good news to preach if Jesus never rose from the dead. I know there are people that preach that, well, he, he rose figuratively. He rose spiritually from the dead. That's not a gospel. That's not a gospel. If Jesus rose figuratively, all of us are still dead in our sins. We need a bodily, physical resurrection from the dead, just like the gospels preach in order to have the gospel. Brothers and sisters, Christianity isn't like any other world religions. Do you know that? It's not like Buddhism. It's not a collection of teachings that we try to live by. I say this when we're out on the streets on Thursdays. I'll, I'll preach this say, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't a gospel of please try harder. That's not a gospel. If we think the gospel is about please try and be a better person, guess what? We're done for. Because you've tried. I've tried and I can't do it. <laughs> I've tried to be a better person, Right? There's no salvation in trying to be a better person. It's not a bad thing, but there's no salvation there. Hallelujah. I, I remember Martin Luther had a very vulgar term about it. Martin Luther, please read Martin Luther. He is honestly one of the funniest guys ever. But he said this. He said, trying to be a better person without repentance and the infilling of the Holy Spirit is like trying to polish a turd. Sorry, kids. But it's true. The gospel of Christ is not, please try harder. The gospel of Christ is that you must believe on him who has fulfilled all, the, um, all of the law on your behalf, who has gone to the cross and paid for your sins. It's not about trying hard. It's about believing on Christ. So I want us to understand once again that our Bible tells the truth that it is a collection of historical documents that document real events in history, okay? I know that sounds like a simple thing to say, but in this day and age, it's quite earth-shattering to say that, <laughs> even in a church, sadly. And moreover, before I begin properly into the message, I want for us to see in this message today a few things. And I want for us to actually glory in these things as we unpack this this event of the walking on the sea. I want for us firstly to see this, that Jesus watches over his people. He watches over his people with a really careful eye. He never lets you out of his sight. And he comes to our rescue just at the right moment. Just at the right moment before it looks like we're going to get swallowed up by whatever storm we're stuck in. I want you to know that Jesus watches over his people. That's the first thing I want for us to know. I want for us to glory in. Secondly, I want for us to see today that sometimes the Lord actually sends his people into storms. I want for you to know that and I want for you church to glory in that. 
Some Christians know that theologically, but they don't like it, and I understand that. Who wants to be sent into a storm? But I want for us to glory in that. Sometimes God actually sends his people into storms for his own reasons. Not sometimes because we've done something wrong, but because he has his own reasons for doing that. And I think so many Christians are confused about this, and they've been taught the opposite, that God will never give you anything in life that's too much for you. He'll, he'll never give you anything difficult or hard. I've actually heard that preached. You know, he's your good, good father. He'll never let you suffer. If you're suffering, it's because it's the devil. It's because you've done something wrong. You haven't tithed enough. You, you haven't declared the right things, right? It's the only reason why you'd suffer. And sadly then, for those Christians who believe that, when suffering does come, it shipwrecks their faith. It shipwrecks their faith because they think, what have I done wrong? Have I been getting this whole Christianity thing wrong? You know, I'm so confused. Why has this bad thing happened to me? Why am I in difficulty? Why am I struggling? You know, why, why is that thing I've been praying for not happened? It must be because Jesus doesn't really love me. But if there's one thing, brothers and sisters, that the New Testament talks on, time and time and time and time again, it's this, that you will suffer. You will suffer. In fact, as a Christian, if you don't suffer, that's something to worry about. Because Jesus promised it. He promised his Holy Spirit, and he promised you'd have trouble in this world. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that, but that's the way it is. And I think, there's a great series actually by uh, an old preacher, one of my favorites called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Please listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Perhaps the greatest preacher of the last century. Um, and he did a whole series called Spiritual Depression where he spoke to these issues and spoke to the reasons why so many Christians are kind of disappointed with Jesus. And this is one of them, is that a lot of Christians have been taught that they'll never suffer, that being a Christian means that life is just going to be, you know, it's going to be cake and fun and yippee. And there is a lot of that, praise God. But equally, troubles will come. And sometimes God sends you into them. <laughs> which not always fun, but it's true. Finally, I want for us to glory in this. Some people say, some very clever people, say that the Gospel of Mark has what's known as a low Christology. Say that, low Christology. And I want to tell you today that that's absolute rubbish. It's rubbish. Low Christology means this. What these scholars say is that basically Mark didn't really think that Jesus was the Son of God, right? That that theology actually developed over the course of the first century. And that John, when we get to John who wrote his gospel in AD 90, we then start seeing this really high Christology where we, we see actual declarations of Jesus being the Son of God. But Mark, you know, this was something that he, he wasn't really sure about. I want to tell you today that's rubbish, it's absolute rubbish. Mark has a high Christology. Mark absolutely believed that Jesus was the Christ. And I'll show you why today. It's an incredible account. And we'll see how in this story of Jesus walking on the water, Mark's gospel explicitly identifies Jesus as Yahweh. Yahweh of the Old Testament. And we'll get into some Greek and Hebrew later because... It's so deep. I hadn't realized how incredible this passage was, to be honest, until I studied it for this sermon. So to begin with, we read about Jesus 
making his disciples get into a boat. You remember, this story, this account comes hot on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish and feeds 5,000 men, let alone women and children. And there are 12 baskets left over that they carry up. This happens immediately after that. And we've got in the Greek this word that we get translated as he made them get into the boat. It's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? He made them get into the boat. Why did he have to make them get in the boat? In fact, that word uh, in the Greek, which is enekasen, uh, there we go. I can, I can pronounce Greek still, that's good. Um, so, enekasen literally means to force. It means to force. So Jesus forced his disciples into the boat. Now, why has he got to do that? Surely just tell them. Guys, get in the boat, head over towards Bethsaida, I'll see you there. But no, he says he forced them into the boat. Now, there's a few theories about why this was the case. Number one, you only have to force somebody into something if they don't want to do it, right? If the disciples wanted to get in the boat, it wouldn't say Jesus had to force them to get into the boat. The first theory is this. The crowd of 5,000 has just witnessed a miracle. An incredible miracle. They've been fed with five loaves and two fishes. And there's all these baskets. And we know that at the time, the Jews were waiting for a Messiah. But in particular, they were waiting for a Messiah who was going to throw off Roman rule. Who was going to show the Romans what for and restore Jerusalem. Now maybe his disciples had gotten caught up in the hype. Maybe they too were saying, Jesus, look... This is our opportunity. Jesus, this is what you've been waiting for. This crowd is really keen to make you Messiah. Isn't that what we're all about? We've got our audience. Jesus, the crowd loves you. The problem is, obviously, the crowd had an agenda. The crowd wanted to use Jesus to fulfill their own aims and objectives. And Jesus wasn't about to let that happen we know that in John's gospel chapter 2 it says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover many believed in his name when they saw the miracles that he did but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in all men now let me say this there are many people today who go to church regularly some of those people who I'm about to speak about, even lead churches. And what they want to do is they want to co-opt Jesus to get their agenda done. They've got a project and they want to use Jesus to get that project done. Whether that's building a big ministry or whether that's helping them make a name for themselves in the world, they want Jesus to help them achieve their own aims. But let me say this, Jesus, just like he departs from his disciples here, just like he departs from the crowd, he will depart from any person who wants to come and co-opt him for their own agenda. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you workers of lawlessness. That's a scary passage right there. There are going to be people who have cast out demons in Jesus' name. Have you cast out a demon in Jesus' name? There's going to be people who prophesied in Jesus' name. Maybe even accurately. But he'll say to them on that day, I never knew you. So what gets you into heaven, brothers and sisters, is not great works. It's not even great works done in Jesus' name. The question is, do we know Jesus? Have we come to Jesus for him? Or have we come to Jesus for what he can give to us? That's the question here that we have to ask. The second suggestion of why Jesus has to force them on the boat is maybe the disciples were unwilling to get onto the boat because they knew about the Sea of Galilee. Most of these guys were fishermen. They they worked around the Sea of Galilee. They knew that in the evening, things could get rough out on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, there's a wind that rips across the Galilee, most often in the evening time. And perhaps they were looking at a weather front approaching and they're thinking, I don't want to get in a boat, Jesus. Listen, can we just walk out to Capernaum or walk over to Bethsaida? We'll camp somewhere. But please, don't, don't make us get on the sea at this time of night. The weather can be very unpredictable on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know if you know that. Maybe they were trying to convince Jesus that it was best not to do that. Do you think Jesus knew what was about to happen? Do you think he knew about the storm that was about to come on the Sea of Galilee? Of course he did. Of course he knew that in a few hours there'd be a storm and that if he sent his disciples out onto the sea, they were going to get caught in it. Of course he knew that. I want you to see right now that Jesus sent his disciples out into a storm on their own, and withdrew to pray. Let's see that just for a moment, because we'll, we'll, we'll return to this thought in a moment. He sends them out onto a boat into the middle of the sea. The Sea of Galilee, yeah, it's not the biggest sea in the world, but it's big enough. It can take six hours to cross, and longer if you're caught in a wind. And they were at the top end of the Sea of Galilee, where it is the widest. And so he sent them out, knowingly into a storm did he do this to punish them do you think i don't think so we don't see jesus rebuke them for anything i don't think that it was because of anything they did wrong i think he sent them out into this storm as we will see because he wanted to show them something he wanted to reveal something to them he wanted to show them his glory he wanted to reveal to them who he really was He was God's saviour sent to rescue sinners. I want to tell you that sometimes God will send you into storms. It's God who sometimes drives us into seasons of struggle, of suffering, of difficulty in life. If you don't believe me, read the book of Job. Job is kryptonite to the prosperity gospel. I don't know if you know that. You never see a prosperity preacher preach on the book of Job. And he won't do this because you've done something wrong. Not always. Let me tell you this as well. It is possible sometimes for Christians to actually create storms in their own life. That's true too. You can make a storm in your life. You can have friends who are destructive individuals and give them too much leeway 
or too much uh, influence into your life and have no boundaries. That'll create a storm. But God didn't send you necessarily into that one. That we can make storms of our own making, can't we? But the Bible does teach also that God sometimes sends us into seasons of struggle, into seasons of suffering, not because we've done something wrong, but in order to reveal himself more clearly to us, to increase our trust in him maybe, to increase our dependence on him. I don't know about you, but I've been in seasons like that where just like the disciples, he said, listen, go over to Bethsaida. He set the course for them and they followed that course. They were in that course, but the storm came. I don't know about you, but sometimes in life, I felt like I'm doing exactly what God asked me to do, but I'm struggling. I'm really struggling. I'm like, God, I thought you told me to go this way. And he's like, yes, I did. But it's hard. Sometimes God sends us into struggles. What does Jesus do then? He departs up a mountain to pray. There are only three times in the whole Gospel of Mark where we read about Jesus praying, and this is one of them. On each of the three occasions, Jesus prays alone, he prays at night, and he prays in a lonely place. And each time his disciples are removed, they're not with him. And often, the well, in, on each occasion actually, the disciples are also conflicted or confused about Jesus' mission. Each time in the Gospel of Mark after Jesus prays, he comes back reinvigorated and reaffirmed in his calling and mission. Every time he goes off to, pr to pray, there's confusion. I don't know if you remember us covering this in the first chapter of Mark where he heals a bunch of people and immediately everybody's like, Jesus, I see what your ministry is about. It's about healing. Let's go and heal everyone. Let's heal everything that moves. And Jesus disappears off to pray doesn't he, in a lonely place, and he comes back and he says, and his disciples say, Jesus, there's more people here that need healing. Look, look, here they are. And he goes, I came to preach the gospel. I must go into other villages and towns because that's why I've come. He comes back reaffirmed in his calling. Now, most people, most people when experiencing success like Jesus does after the feeding of the 5,000. Most people, after seeing so many people just being blessed by their ministry or by their work, most people wouldn't dismiss those crowds, would they? They wouldn't say, right, go away. I'm going off on my own to pray. But that's exactly what Jesus did. In this moment, I want you to see this. He shows what really mattered to him more than anything else. Wasn't the approval of people but it was the approval of his Father in heaven. That's what mattered more to Jesus than anything. Does my Father in heaven approve? Jesus never used the approval of the crowd as a barometer of his success. Did you catch that? He never used the approval of people as a barometer of whether he was doing a good job. If anything, Jesus ran from their approval. He ran from it. Every time we see people getting ready to make him king, off he goes. He slips away. He goes up a mountain to pray. In this world of approval addiction, brothers and sisters, let's not seek to be defined by the opinions of others, please. Let's not weigh our value by how many followers we've got on social media. Let's not measure our faithfulness to Jesus by how highly the world thinks of us. Amen? Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you. But as, it, as its own, but because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. Strong language. He says again in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For their fathers did that to the false prophets. Yikes. So our aim as Christians in life is not to get everyone to like us. Imagine that. Sometimes you'd think it was, wouldn't you? That really what we're here on earth to do as Christians is basically just be really nice. Just be really likable. You know, nobody should have a bad word to say about you. And in a sense, that's true. Listen, one of the qualifications of an elder is that you should be above reproach. So I, as an elder, shouldn't have people out in the world thinking I'm a total jerk. But at the same time, I shouldn't be liked by everyone. I shouldn't be spoken well of by everyone. If no one's got a bone to pick with you, that's probably a problem. (laughs) We probably haven't preached the cross loud enough through our lives or through our words if everybody just thinks we're great. It should be a cost to pay for being a Christian. I think also what's clear is that Jesus had a rich, profound prayer life. And it was to prayer that Jesus retreated in times of crisis. And I just want to put this to us as a congregation, you know. We pray that we might also give prayer more of a central place in our lives however that might look. I don't want for us to start beating ourselves up about how many hours we pray. But I think that it's clear to me that prayer was a place of comfort for Jesus in the face of difficulty. And I know sometimes for me, when I experience difficulty, maybe when you get triggered by something, it it happens to all of us, is the place of comfort for you prayer? That's a good question to ask. For me, the temptation is social media or busyness, you know. But imagine if we as a church made prayer our place of comfort. Let's see if we can guard a prayer life for ourselves. Is there a place or a time during your week when you just look to get alone with God? Is there a time when you switch your phone off And just sit with him, walk with him, process life with God. Those are good questions to ask. We read that later in the night, as the boat was in the middle of the lake and Jesus is on the land, he he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the sea. He was about to pass them by. Now, wherever it says, wherever it was that Jesus actually went to pray, he made sure that he always kept the disciples within eyesight. He says he went up a mountain, but whatever mountain it was, he wanted to see them. He wanted to make sure he had them in his view. He was keeping watch over them. He saw they were in difficulty. They weren't making any headway because they're straining at the oars. The wind is against them. I want us to see that. that Jesus never lets his people out of his sight. 
He's never going to let you out of his sight. Wherever you are in the world, whatever you're doing, however dangerous it might be, however difficult things might be, know this, Jesus has his eyes on you. That's a great word right there. He will not let you out of his sight. He's not too busy. Sometimes I think, God, do you really want to listen to my prayers? I'm sure you've got other prayers that are more interesting to listen to than mine. But he's interested. His eye is on you. Furthermore, the disciples are struggling out on the Sea of Galilee, but they're on course. They are heading exactly where Jesus told them to go. They weren't off course. They weren't struggling because they'd gone the wrong way. They, ha- they were struggling and being battered by the waves because they were in Christ's way. As I've said, I think some Christians believe that being a Christian is all about living your best life now. Always being healthy, always being wealthy, always progressing in life. They don't have a grid for storms. When difficulties and setbacks or pain or trials come, they assume that it's because they're off course, because they're not in the will of God. Or they're getting the whole Christianity thing wrong. They get discouraged, they get downhearted. But we see here the disciples are right in God's way. They're right the way that Jesus told them to go. And they're experiencing a storm. They're getting battered. They've been stuck there for hours. By the time Jesus goes out to them, it's between 3 and 6 a.m. They left before evening. That's hours. But they were right where Jesus had told them to be. The Bible teaches that trials, difficulties, suffering are a proper part of the Christian life. Christianity is a glorious walk, but it is not a cakewalk. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't, don't be confused when suffering comes. Don't think, why me? I do that. Just ask my wife. Stub my toe. Why? Right? But don't be surprised when trials of various kinds come. As though something strange had happened. This is not strange. James 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Of various kinds. Count it joy. Read a Spurgeon quote to you. Do not consider that adverse circumstances are a proof that you've missed your road. For they may even be an evidence that you are in the good old way. Since the path of believers is seldom without trial. Sometimes in these storms, when we are exactly where God wants us to be, when we are following his word, but we're still experiencing difficulties, you know sometimes the only thing you can do is do what the disciples did. Keep rowing. Keep straining at those oars. Use what God has given you to use, your mind, your abilities, your giftings, your talents. Keep pulling at those oars. Don't give up. Notice the disciples didn't throw in the towel. They didn't say, right, that's it, I've had enough. Jesus clearly sent us the wrong way. Let's give up. (coughs) Let's just let the wind carry us wherever it wants to. As Spurgeon says, sometimes the storm hits you because you're exactly on the right path. Don't turn back. Don't give up. Don't give in. Stick your oar in and row like crazy. Give it all you've got and trust that the Lord will rescue you at the right time. 
J.C. Ryle, wonderful Church of England minister back in the 19th century, said this. He was the Bishop of Liverpool. And he said, He may not come to our aid at the time that we like best, but he will never allow us to utterly fail. It's a good word. Now it says that Jesus, when he came to them walking on the sea, strangely it says he intended to pass them by. Jesus comes to them walking on the water, but it seems to say he's going to pass them by. Why would he do that? Why would he want to pass them by? It sounds strange. Is he doing a flyby? What, what, what's going on? Now what I think we need to do right here, and this is going to get really deep really fast, so I want you to stick with me. We have to view this passage not with 21st century English or Scottish or Irish eyes, but with Jewish eyes. We have to view this passage through the Old Testament to really understand what's going on here. In the Old Testament, whenever God passed by, he was doing so to give somebody a glory encounter with his presence. Did you know that? That phrase, to pass by, let, let me show you. In Exodus 33, Moses wants to see the glory of God. Verse 19 to 22. And God said to him, I will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim my name before you, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on who I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. You understand who that rock is, right? You understand what the rock is. That's Christ. You will stand on Christ. And you shall not be shaken. Moreover, in First Kings... Elijah is out in the wilderness at Horeb and he says, go and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So it's no accident that Mark includes this little Greek phrase, parelthane, which is, means to pass by. It's loaded with messianic significance. Moreover, not only is it significant that Jesus came to pass by, just like Yahweh passed by Moses and Elijah, Jesus actually gets into the boat with them. He actually gets into the boat. He doesn't pass them by. He gets in. This right here is evidence that Christ is the Messiah. He is the Savior. You see how the God of the Old Testament, when he passed by, you had to turn away. He had to cover you so you didn't die. When Jesus came to pass by, he gets in the boat. He gets into your boat. Now, people who think that the Gospel of Mark doesn't have a high Christology are just flat mistaken. Once again, when we view Jesus as walking on the water through the lens of the Old Testament, we see what was being said through it. It wasn't just a party trick. He was revealing who he really was. Check this out, Job 9 verses 8 and 11. This is Job mapping out the differences between God and people. So he's going to talk about qualities that make God who God is. He says this, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. 
He performs wonders that can't be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. So only God walks on the waves of the sea. Only God treads on the waves. You can see now what Jesus is doing is he's saying, who am I? Who else can walk on the waves? Nobody but Yahweh. Who else passes by to show you their glory? Only Yahweh. And it says he called out to them, take courage, it is I. Do not fear. One of the most repeated phrases in all the Bible. Do not fear. Jesus calms them by calling to them, confirming it's him. But I want to share one last thing before I finish. There's an even deeper layer of truth here, brothers and sisters. An even deeper layer of revelation when we read this passage in the original Greek language. Because literally speaking, Jesus doesn't actually say, it is I. It's really cool. What he actually says is, ego I me, which means I am. I am. Do not fear. I am. That's the exact same phrase that Jesus uses at his trial before the Sanhedrin. It says this, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, Ego I me, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This Ego I me is exactly the name that Yahweh gives to himself when speaking to Moses from the burning bush. You see, you've got two versions of the Old Testament, not really versions, but translations. You've got the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Old Testament, the Tanakh, and then you have the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. Okay, Those are the two uh, languages. Now, when we'll read this together, in Exodus 3, 13 and 14, Moses is stood before the burning bush. And Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they will ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent you. The Hebrew Old Testament, that I am who I am, is Echye Asher Echye. I am that I am. But in the Septuagint, it's ego, I me. Jesus is identifying himself as Yahweh of the Old Testament. I want you to catch that. This one destroys the Jehovah's Witness theology that Jesus is just a created being. Jesus is God. Ego, I me. Spurgeon said this, Have your possessions failed? Is your health departing? Are your joys declining? Alas, it is a dying, fleeting world. But there is one who is always the same. For Jesus says to you, I am. And because I live, you shall live also. Be comforted. Whatever else is gone, whatever else the arrows of death may fly, your Jesus still lives. I am. Blessed word of rich comfort to be heard amid the darkness of the night by weary mariners whose spirits had been sinking within them. There is an immediate comfort, brothers and sisters, and an immediate peace when Jesus is in our boat with us. There's no comfort when he's not. The Bible offers no comfort 
for people who want to sail alone, to those who want to plot their own course, to those who reject Jesus as the captain of their boat. The word of God has no comfort for the unbeliever, ultimately. Jesus approaches our boat today. And he'll come in if we'll have him. But Christ doesn't come in to be our crewmate, but our captain. Amen. We must hand over the tiller. I just want to encourage those of you who maybe have been rowing through what feels like a storm in life. I just want to encourage you with this story today. I hope you have been encouraged by it. And I pray that you'd know these truths that Jesus is watching over you just the same as he watched over his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. You've never been out of his sight if you belong to him. He's never taken his eye off of his people and he never will. And I pray that when you read those words, take courage, I am. Don't fear that you can appropriate those words into your storm, whatever that might be. Christ is with you. Christ will not let you out of his sight and he will not let you fail. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team back up. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, that you sent your only son. You sent Christ, who you have been with since eternity past. And you sent him, born of a virgin, vulnerable, lying in a manger, to save sinners. And God, we pray today, whatever we might have been going through in life, that we would hear those words fresh in our situation today. Take courage. I am. Do not fear. Lord, I pray courage for all your people who are walking through or rowing through storms in life right now. We pray courage and strength to continue to wait in prayer for your rescue. And Lord, we pray for those who as yet have not invited Christ into their boat, but are struggling out on the open seas of this world. Lord, we pray for grace and mercy for them, that they would realize their need of you, their need of a savior today. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If anybody like prayer afterwards, please do come and speak to me. I'm happy to pray for you.